morning. It's good to see you all here. It is a, a privilege and a pleasure to be able to bring God's word to you this morning, especially about a subject that is uh, particularly exciting and relevant to me and to all of us. That's why I'm going to be talking to you about it this morning. But as we've gone through the liturgy this morning, we've actually we focused in the opening homily as well as in the, the law with things like sin. We talked about sin and affliction and difficulty and discipline. Then we transitioned to kind of the response to that. We, if you were paying attention, you might recall we sang about a crown that lays ahead of us and the joy that was before Jesus and the joy that is therefore before us, ahead of us, and the transformation Uh, Dave was just talking about the transformation that we need. All of this is, these are things that we look forward to. And so really the the sermon this morning is hopefully in part going to answer the question, what is that crown going to sit on? What does that transformation ultimately look like? So that's the goal for today. And it will probably come as no surprise to you that our family's current situation with Karen's health is preoccupying a bunch of our thinking. It has for 16 years, and so being given this opportunity to preach, my desire is to be able to share with you one of the foundational truths that gives us the ability to face death without losing heart, without losing hope, to be able to mourn, but not as those without hope, not ignoring the realities of death, not ignoring the realities of decay, but also not living and thinking as if that is the end of the story. So I've made it a habit, um, oftentimes, when I get confused about maybe a theological question, or I don't know what to think about a significant life question, I go back to the basics. I go back to the gospel. I go back to the cross, to the Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then the solution to that and the cross of Jesus. And I've yet to find that that simple approach of just looking to the simple words of our Heavenly Father, not the complicated theological questions, but the simplicities, it's never failed. And so it is in this discussion, as today I want to talk to you about some, some of what the Bible says regarding not only the resurrection of Jesus, which we just celebrated not long ago, I talked a little bit about that in our communion homily, but about your future bodily resurrection. That's the goal today. So normally I'd have you stand as we want to symbolize, we want to, um, to, make, to declare the, the reverence and the honor that we should have for God's word. But because I'm going to be reading a nice big chunk of, of 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to just have you sit and we'll just recognize together that this is God's perfect, beautiful, sufficient, authoritative word. It deserves honor and respect. And so as I'm reading, it's going to be, you guys live in, you you people live in bodies that get distracted easily. And I'm just going to encourage you as I read to just govern your body. Seek to listen to the text of scripture, knowing that it is living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it, it can do work in you as you hear So I'm going to start at verse 20. We're going to go through most of 1 Corinthians 15, but I'm not going to read the whole thing right now. I'm just going to start at verse 20, and I'll end at verse 49. Hear the word of the Lord. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die... So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in its turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And there's where we should say... Amen. There we go. Good. Feel free to do that without even being directed. That might be fun. The last enemy to be destroyed, hear this, Christian, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There you go. Good job. 
For he has, and he's quoting Psalm 110 here, he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now when he says everything has been put under him, it is clear that he doesn't include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no... I'm continuing to read. These are, these are Paul's words. Now, if there is no resurrection, what, what, will we, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And by the way, we're not going to be talking about that today, so if you're... Oh, I'm curious... That's not, it's not on the docket for today. We'll do that another time. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? If you know Paul's life, you'll know what he's talking about there. I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some of you who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And when you, when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There's also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. Verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have, been, have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the gospel and the message of Jesus and what you desire of us is simple enough for a child, but also deep enough that scholars will never plumb the depths of it. And there's a lot here, and so we thank you for that, that it is deep, it is, there's a, there are riches here, to be discovered. And so I ask that you would help us to discover some of that today, that we would marvel at precisely what you've accomplished in the great work of our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray this. Amen. Okay, so today we're investigating a subject, the, I think the reality of which is clear. I don't think many of us deny that the, the resurrection is a thing. Um, it's also a message that, it's a topic that's central to the gospel. But many of the details, so I'm not, I don't have any special knowledge for you this morning. I did not get a prophetic word from God. Just what God gave here. And so it comes with a great deal of mystery. So our job... My job this morning is to seek to speak boldly where God has spoken clearly, and we should speak, and I should seek to speak humbly where God has chosen to leave the details of surprise. And I like that idea of surprise, because a lot of this will be revealed, just not yet. 
In Deuteronomy 20, uh, 29, 29, there's these important words. And this is important not just for this text and not just for this subject, but as you approach God's word, hear these words. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So God has hidden things. God has things he has not revealed. That belongs to God. But the things that are revealed, the things that God has uncovered, the things that he has shown a light upon, those are important. They belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the law. So this morning, the goal is what God has revealed, we're going to try to unpack and understand. Those things that are still mysterious, still a surprise, waiting for the future, we're going to leave those there. Um, Maybe we'll surmise a little bit, but, but not hang too much on them. Um, now, what's the problem? Philosophers, theologians, and I, I think really every thinking person at some level is occupied with seeking some explanation to the broken world in which we live and the broken bodies in which we live. We know there's a problem. We feel it quite literally in our bones at times. We're confronted with that reality daily and more Every day that we live. The Buddha. The Buddha saw it. He saw it as he exited the safety of his sanitized world of wealth into which he had been born. And then as he exited this compound as a young man, all of the ugliness of the world that was around him that he'd been kept from, he suddenly saw it. And he did what we all do. What is the cause of this? Where did this come from and what's the solution? The Greek philosopher Plato, he saw it as well and he tried to explain it. Both its cause and its solution. And both of these men are good examples of the common move that we make when we're in the face of suffering. Both of these men declared that the physical world must be the problem. This created universe must be the problem. This created stuff, the stuff you sit upon. This right here, this here. Everything around, that's the problem. The Buddha said that this is, this is stuff. It's, the problem is that it's actually just an illusion. It doesn't really exist. And our focus on it is actually what's causing all the suffering. So just transcend all this world and you'll finally no longer be bothered by it. That's a, that's a simple explanation, but that's basically what he was doing. This is just an illusion. Stop focusing on it. It's all your focus on this stuff that's the problem. Plato did something similar, but he didn't deny the reality of this existence. He just said, oh, this is just, this is kind of trash. This stuff is dingy. He mocked this stuff. This is, this is not, um, this is just a, a poor reflection of the reality. But they both did the same thing. They they found the problem in this created world. And it's such a common move, isn't it, to to point outward to anything but ourselves, anything but the fallen human heart. The material world has been and will probably be until the end of time one of our favorite scapegoats to explain away the pain and and the suffering that we experience. And if this material world were the problem, then I think they would have gotten it, you know, they would have been moving in the right direction. If, if you have a problem, if you have a Goliath, if, the, if you have an enemy in front of you, you can either try to run away, away from it or you can fight it. But what if this world is not, what if this material world is not the problem? What, what do we do then? What if escaping this world and leaving these bodies is not the solution? So in contrast to calling this world and our bodies names, which is kind of what they were doing, God is very clear what he thinks about physical stuff. God created the world, and what did he call it? Good. Then he created us, incarnate souls. Incarnate means in flesh. We've got flesh. He created us. He created us soul bodies. Soul bodies. Soul-bodies together. And when he stepped back to gaze upon Adam and Eve, at the end of all things, what did he call it? 
Very good. No reader of the Bible who takes this seriously can get away with doing what Buddha or Plato did. Because to do so would be to say icky to what God believes to be glorious. It's never a good idea to argue with God, to contradict him. And and consider for a moment what Jesus did and did not do. Jesus took on flesh, incarnate. He lived in that flesh, and then he took that flesh willingly to the top of a physical hill where that flesh was physically nailed to a physical cross with pieces of iron that were all too real. And as he hung on that cross, he gave up his spirit and experienced the great dislocation. His body slumped lifeless on that tree, and his spirit entered into the presence of his father. He'd already told that thief a few moments ago that this, that he would experience something glorious, to be free from the indignities and pain of the fallen world. Jesus called it paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. But let me ask you a question. Think for a moment. Was this the great climax of the story? Sin, your sins have been forgiven. Amen. And, and we should be thankful for that. But was that the climax? Was that the, the pinnacle of the story? No. This was the breath before the show-stopping note. This was the intermission before the great reveal. The thief that day joined his newfound Lord in paradise, but the rest of his disciples walked away under a dark cloud of confusion. They walked away hopeless, depressed. They had not understood what their rabbi and Messiah had promised. Jesus did not simply come to die for your sins. He came to die so that he could put death to death. Prior to our first father's sin, there was no death. There was no agonistic decay. There was only life and growth. The wages Adam purchased for himself and all that he represented, both his children, that's us, and the world that he was to steward, the wages he purchased was death. Our bodies, so integral to what it means to be me or to be you, they began to decay We began to groan, and get this, so did the entire created cosmos. We ruined it for everything. And so as that three-day breath ended, and God began to sing his song of restoration, as the three-day intermission ceased and the great drama came to life, so did that body three days in the ground. You see, Jesus came and is coming to set right all that went wrong. Do you hear the gloriousness of that? We're so satisfied with things that are so small. Oh, I'm just saved out of hell. I don't have to worry about that anymore. What a small picture we have. Jesus, the Redeemer, didn't just come to save your soul. He came to put right everything that went wrong. And physicalness is not wrong. Our physical bodies and the physical world were and continue to be good. It is the rot of sin, the cancer of our rebellion that needs to be undone, not the chairs on which you sit, not the birds that nested in the altar, blessed. Not our arms or our legs that need to be vanquished. We're told this so explicitly, so beautifully in Romans 8. The creation itself longs for its own rescue. The creation, the cosmos, longs for its own rescue. The way we often think about the end of the story is that the creation is simply begging to be shot in the head and be put out of its misery. Is there an end to misery? Yeah. An end to the physical world? No. Emphatically, no. And we hear this in Romans 8, starting at verse 18. For I hear this, it's marvelous. I can, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we think, yeah, I'm going to be glorified. Whatever that means, that's going to be great. No, he goes on to say, for the creation waits with eager longing. The creation. Think about what comprises the creation. Do you own a dog? I do. Hobbes, my dog Hobbes, is 
longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Have you seen a sunset recently? That sun is longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's all longing for what he says is the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It wasn't its fault, but because of him who subjected it, because of Adam. But in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth up until this day. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. And we groan inwardly as we await for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Notice the creation is waiting. The great moment in history that the creation is waiting for is our revealing. The creation is looking at us and waiting for our revealing. We subjected the creation to suffering, and the creation was the innocent victim waiting for restitution. But that restitution is actually a restoring. In the Old Covenant law, we were commanded not simply to restore what was stolen, but to give back threefold what was stolen. So if you stole something, and then you either caught or you decided to repent and to give it back, you didn't just give it back. You had to give back more than what you stole. So what can the creation expect in its own restoration? What can you expect in your restoration? A greater glory than what it once had. A greater glory than what you once had. And that glory is what's being waited for. The creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom and the glory that has been promised to its human stewards. The freedom and glory that were purchased in the death and the resurrection of the second Adam. Until then, the creation waits like a woman in the pains of labor. And so do we. We who have been given the Spirit as the first fruits that will come in greater measure even than today, we wait along with the creation for the fullness of, of that freedom to arrive. And like a great and growing, va- get the picture here, a great and growing vacuum of glory that sucks everything into it, the cleanup cleanup operation began with the resurrection of Jesus. He turned the vacuum on. And it began to call. That resurrection of his body, we, his children, are next to be sucked into that, that place of glory. And then who follows that? The rest of the cosmos. Jesus started it. We follow him. And then the rest of the cosmos makes its way into that glory. It is the salvation promised in Genesis chapter 3 to restore what was broken there that Paul is addressing here in chapter 15. Jesus came to restore. That means to put back in order, to put to rebuild what we have torn down. Jesus did not come, nor he is coming, to destroy this world. He came to redeem and to purchase it out of slavery. So we're going to go briefly through the first 19 verses, very briefly. Um, So you get the context. We'll focus a little bit more, um, starting at verses uh, 20. But Paul makes the point that the resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus' resurrection not only stands as a great and unavoidable neon sign in the middle of history. There's something unique that happened 2,000 years ago. When Jesus rose from the dead, a signpost was placed there that's blinking for everyone to look at. Something impossible happened. A man came back from the dead never to die again. And that was just the first taste of what salvation was really intended to accomplish. Not simply the rescue of our souls from sin, but the rescue of our bodies from the corruption and the death that is the wages of that sin. But we enter this text today at the end of a long dialogue. This is chapter 15, after all. 
like entering into the middle of a conversation, it's important to get our bearings. So there were those who were in Corinth, either in the church or around it, who were denying the resurrection of the dead. So Paul takes aim at the dangerous teaching, aims straight at the heart of the gospel, and in verses 1 and 2, he comes out swinging, and he tells us simply this, if you get this wrong, you cannot stand and you cannot be saved. Yikes. If you get, it, if you get the resurrection, at least the, the reality of the resurrection wrong, you cannot stand and you cannot be saved. That should get our attention. Verses 3 and 4, why? Because he's, he reminds us here that the gospel has three parts. What are the three parts? Christ died, was buried, and was raised. If you mess with the resurrection, you're messing with the climax of the gospel message itself. And then verses 5 through 11, Paul points to the public reality of this bodily resurrection. Jesus was seen by Peter, more than 500 other brothers. He was seen by James, he was seen by all the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen by Paul. This was not a secret event. It was not hidden behind closed walls. He was publicly seen and publicly declared... He is risen. Oh, good. I was wondering if that would happen. Good job. This was no symbol. It was not a metaphor. It was a reality. A reality as real as our sin. And as real as our deaths. We needed a real Savior because of our real sin. We need the real resurrection of these bodies because of the real death of these bodies. A symbolic resurrection is no good for a real death. In verses 12 to 19, Paul's classically rigorous theological logic drives home the devastating consequences of denying the resurrection. If you want to deny the resurrection, he says, if there's no resurrection, then Christ cannot have been raised, right? Think about it. If there's no resurrection... Not even for Christ. Be consistent. And the results of that, the consequences of that, according to Paul, are that our preaching is, if if there's no resurrection, our preaching is vain, our faith is futile, we're still in our sins, we have only hope of perishing, and we have no real hope because we're just to be pitied. But then we get to the good news where we're going to slow down just a little bit. Starting at verse 20. The good news, and he opens up with this, he says, Jesus has been raised. And he begins to set up a vital parallel. There's a lot of paralleling going on in the rest of this text. Christ's work is connected to us. Christ is what Paul calls the first fruits. More specifically, he says the resurrection is the first fruits. His resurrection is the first handful of a harvest. His resurrection, so you've got a picture of a, you go out to a field and you see the first few buds of grain and you pick it, first fruits, and you know that the rest of that field shortly is going to be full of wheat. But maybe you want to think of it a different way. His resurrection is the appetizer that precedes the full feast. An appetizer isn't the meal, although some appetizers are good enough. You, you, know, you get to the meal and you're like, oh my goodness, I think I ate too much. But the good news is that you'll never be able to eat too much of what God has prepared for you. So what we see the one man, Jesus, enjoying, the resurrected body of Jesus, we will one day enjoy as well. His resurrection is the first fruits of ours. Ours will be the harvest. His is the first fruits. Two Adams are being contrasted here then, starting in verse 21. The first Adam brought death. The second Adam, Jesus, brought life. A kind of life was provided by Jesus that is appropriate for the kind of death we experience through Adam. He says this twice. In a number of ways. For as by man, the first Adam, came death, so by man, the second Adam, Jesus, has also come the resurrection of the dead. This tells us something significant. 
This tells us that the resurrection that was experienced by Jesus and purchased for us as the first fruits of our own undoes the death that was brought by Adam. If you came to a physician, think about the last doctor visit you had, and you had a broken bone, and what he prescribed was a beautiful poem about broken bones being healed, would you want to pay him? No. Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think you'd want to pay him. You wouldn't be satisfied. If you came to a doctor with a diagnosis of cancer, and what he prescribed for you is this beautiful story about a man who was healed from cancer, you would not be satisfied. That does no good for the problem that you've actually been experiencing. Your broken bone needs to be healed. Great for that other guy, but what about me? The cancer needs to be dealt with. And though we know that the death that Adam brought is not simply physical, it was spiritual death, it is nevertheless truly, genuinely, really physical as well. The wrinkles on your face are not metaphors. They're real. I see Dwayne moving uncomfortably. (laughs) The back that your chiropractor cracks is not a spiritual back. Your body is physical and needs physical healing. I was at the cemetery just a few weeks ago. I stood on the piece of ground where my wife's body will lay soon. I looked at my right hand and I saw the headstone of a man I don't know. I could see his face. His face was on the headstone. He's gone there first. His body is there, decaying. I looked just to the left I saw another headstone of a man who I don't know, whose body's in the ground, covered in dirt, experiencing corruption. My arms literally tingled with kind of this cold sensation. As I looked down at the ground beneath my feet, it was only a moment, but just to imagine what was going to happen there. This ought not to be. This doesn't feel right at all. But isn't death natural? Let's define our terms. I guess it depends on how you define natural. If you define natural based on what currently happens on a regular basis, fine, it's natural. But if you define natural based on how things ought to be, If you define natural based upon what we were designed to experience, then no. Death is not natural. Death is an invader. Death is an enemy. Death is a problem, and death is not beautiful. Death needs to die. Spiritual death? Of course. But what about these bodies that die? This tragic result of the fall that took place in history. Adam sinned in time, in history. He brought death, both physical and spiritual, into the world in time and in history. We will die and decay for real in time and in history. We need a redeemer who will die in in time and in history. And he did. And then conquer death. And he did, both spiritually and physically, in time and in history. Because the death that we experience in our sin is both spiritual and physical. It takes place here. That's the kind of hero that we need. So as we seek to understand just a bit better the nature of the resurrection this morning, we need to first recognize that the resurrection solves a particular kind of problem. Because we are designed to be incarnate souls, enfleshed souls, in soul bodies, soul-bodies, together. The dash is supposed to, like gravity, just keep it together. Because we were designed to be these kinds of beings, because our soul, that immaterial aspect of who we are, And our bodies, the stuff that is seated in your chairs right now, 
were never supposed to be separated because they were designed to go together because of these con- this connectedness. Death destroys us, body and soul. And without a savior, our souls and our bodies both die. So the only solution appropriate to this particular problem, the real problem that we face, is a savior who saves both body and soul. There you go, thank you. The resurrection of the body, the body you were given, in which you now live, that kind of resurrection, that's what's necessary. It is a part of the gift purchased by Christ. He purchased your soul and your body, both out of the bondage of decay. This should cause us great joy. Amen? Amen. I like my body. I protect it, and I feed it, and I comfort it. I don't want it. I don't want to leave it. And in the end, I don't have to. Because it has been redeemed by Jesus, along with my soul. So if you have your Bibles open to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, find your way to verse 24. We're making our way along here. So it is with this encouraging argument firmly in mind that Paul brings his argument to a climax. We're told in verse 24 that this will all happen in a particular order. Christ comes first. His resurrection was first in history. It's just literally, he's pointing out, Christ comes first. I don't think there's anything terribly spiritual about that. He's pointing out in history, that's that's, that's who rose first. His resurrection, placed in the middle of history as a shining beacon of what would be consummated at the end of his kingdom work in us. Jesus is first, and then those who belong to him hear those life-giving words. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death, not just spiritual death, physical death, death in all of its attributes, death dies. How is death destroyed? Is death destroyed when we die and go to heaven? Think about that. That's actually, you don't have to answer, but think about it. Is death destroyed when, um, when you die? Is that when death is destroyed? No. Is it glorious? Yes. Paradise, according to Jesus. Good? Yes. Beautiful? Yes. An end to suffering? Absolutely. But that is not when death dies. Death is not, think about this, when you die and you go to heaven, and there's that great dislocation, you're going to leave your body in the grave to molder and deteriorate and decay. Does that look like death, uh, does that look like, like the end of death to you? No. Death is defeated when you follow that parallel that Paul is making. We died In Adam, we suffered the death that he gave to us. The life that we have in Jesus is the life that he experienced. Death is defeated when we experience that kind of resurrection. He is the first fruits of our resurrection. Death is defeated when our bodies rise from the grave, when our bones are knit together, when the ashes are reconstituted, when the moldering flesh of those newly deceased have life breathed back into them, and our bodies rise from the grave. When our bodies rise from the grave, even as Jesus' body rose from the grave and could not be found there any longer. So we read in verse 35, something interesting. Paul does a classic Pauline move. He anticipates your question. Because I just mentioned, if you've been paying attention, like what about those who've been cremated? And what about those who are so decayed, whose bodies are so decayed, they're tree food now. How does that work? And so he he asks in verse 35, he asks your question. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Question one. Question two, and what kind of body do, and with what kind of body do they come? Verse 36, his answer, also typically Pauline. You foolish person. How kind of Paul to anticipate the question. But why does he answer that way? Well, isn't that the way that Jesus answered the same kind of question? 
In Matthew 22, starting at verse 23, we hear this story about Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees denied the resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Hey, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. So if that's the rule, I've got a scenario for you, Jesus. There was, a, there was seven brothers. The first married and died. Having no offspring, he left his wife to his mother. So too, the second... I'm sorry. Okay, that, I was reading, and it was a voice to text, and that's not right. <laughs> uh, left his wife to his brother. Watch yourself when you're using technology. That's a very different story. Okay, he left his wife to his brother. Okay, so to the second, you guys were listening, that's good. Okay, so to the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died in the resurrection. Here's the question. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. She had seven husbands in the resurrection. Which one is, is it the first? Is it the last? Is it the one she likes the most? Better looking? Smarter? Which one, Jesus? Solve that problem. The question has some good sense to it, but the motive was bad. The Sadducees clearly were doing what both the Sadducees and the Pharisees loved to do. They wanted to trip Jesus up. They wanted to find some reason to embarrass him, and ultimately they wanted something on which they could hang an accusation of either treason or blasphemy so that they could finally hang him. The motive was wrong, but the question is understandable. It's similar to us. Like, what do you do with cremation and all that? So how does Jesus respond? The kind, gentle Lamb of God. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you do not, neither, you do not know either the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Jesus essentially responded, You're ignorant. You don't know either the scriptures you say you know, nor do you know the power of God that you say you know. And just as an aside, many people make the accusation that the resurrection was a theological concept that wasn't really even discussed until the New New Testament. It wasn't talked about in the Old Covenant. It's not true. If we had more time, we could talk more about that. But let it be noted a few things, really briefly, that the resurrection was spoken of clearly enough in the Old Testament that the Pharisees had a, if not a robust theology of resurrection, a theology that was significant enough that there was a significant argument between the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But regardless of them, Notice that Jesus himself builds his Old Testament theology of resurrection on the Old Testament scriptures. He answers by saying, you're asking the wrong question. You neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus believed that the Old Testament scriptures had something to say about the resurrection. And though there might be more to the answer than this, the problem was that they didn't understand the power of God. So part of our answer, if you want an answer that will be partly satisfying and partly unsatisfying to, well, what about people cremated and, and so forth? The answer that Jesus gives is just know the power of God. Just know that God is powerful enough. But the question, how are the dead raised, is only the first of two questions Paul anticipates. The second is well, with what kind of body do they come? So if you've found a different place, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verse 36 through 53, and then we'll be close to being done. The fact that we enter the ground and decay is not a problem for God, so just you can set that aside. It's, it's an interesting question, but it's not a problem, not for God. Paul says this very explicitly. And then in verse 36, he says... Very much like Jesus, you foolish person. It goes back here to this picture of a seed. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. This is a really rich picture. 
What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Think about that. You know it to be true. The seed you sow will not come to life unless it is placed in the ground and decays. And Paul goes on in verse 37 to explain this further. What you sow is not the body that is to be, just a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. So what you put in the ground is and is not, it is and is not the same thing. Is it wheat when you put it in the ground? Yeah. Well, and no. It's wheat in seed form, and what it becomes is a wheat plant. So there's a sameness, and there's a distinction between what is and what will be, between what is planted and what is harvested. It's the same in that it doesn't start as a wheat seed. So listen to this. It's the same when you plant a seed in the ground. It's the same in that it doesn't produce a cherry. A wheat seed doesn't produce a cherry tree. A wheat seed will not produce a cherry tree. It doesn't start as a seed and then produce a car. It doesn't start as a seed and then produce a beautiful, beautiful poem. It starts as a wheat seed. It goes into the ground where it dies, and then what is raised in its place is a useful and beautiful wheat plant, the same but different. And so he continues in verse 38, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but just a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. What we have being contrasted here are two bodies. A plant body and a seed body. Not an immaterial thing and a material thing, but two material things, two things that can be held in your hand, two things that can be eaten. They're same in that they're the same plant, but different in that one is a seed and one is a mature plant. A seed body goes into the ground and dies, and when it is brought forth from the grave, it is a new plant body. Verses 39 through 41 emphasize this point. There are two kinds of bodies with different kinds of glory. We're not going to focus on that, but those verses really talk about this. We see this in other places. We can look around and we can see analogies of this in other places. But in verse 42, he continues back with this seed analogy He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. So we've got this seed to plant picture in our heads, and he says, okay, it's like this with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. It's sown in natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So what do we make of this? He's moving from the sameness. You can't, don't lose track of the sameness. But he's moving from that to the differences. The bodies that we now have, and as you think about and reflect on your own bodies, you'll, be, you'll begin to, to understand and go, yeah, I, I get this. He describes them as perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural. But the body to come is described as imperishable, glorious, empowered, and spiritual. Let's unpack those briefly, just one by one. Attribute one, there's four attributes. The body to come will be imperishable. It will, have, it will not have the ability to die. Just as Jesus' new body cannot die. He died once for all, so our resurrection body will be like his, unable to die. That new body, children, listen to this. Those of you who are struggling to find joy in your work, work will continue. The new body we will will be given will be able to till the ground, but will never again find itself buried beneath that ground. Attribute two is, he describes the new body as honorable. This body that we are now living in is prone to decay and falling apart. And as it does, the process can produce some embarrassing results. 
some kind of dishonor, dishonoring realities. Uh, we will become, if we live long enough, like children again. And so my diapers, sorry, Hannah and Sophie, my diapers, if I live long enough, will need to be changed again. It's funny now. It won't be funny then for a lot of people. Like an immature seed, this body is sown in dishonor. But that's not how the story ends. What is sown in dishonor will be raised glorious. And that's the third attribute. This new body will be glorious. It will be glorious in that what is sown now without weightiness, without glory, easily blown by the winds of time, will find a weight of glory in the resurrection, unmoved by time, unmoved by the threat of death, that threat that we live with now daily. And then the last attribute is it's going to be spiritual. What is sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. And this is where we need to be really careful. Because you might have, you might be going, okay, I get that. I know what that means. But it's so easy to take our own preconceived notions of words and to shove them onto the text. And if we were to do that right now, if we were to just assume, oh yeah, I know what that means to be spiritual, we run the risk of turning the entire glorious promise of the resurrection on its head. And I think for a lot of us, that's what we've done. We immediately think that to be, to be natural means to be in this body, and to be spiritual to be spiritual means that we're immaterial now. We contrast physical with non-physical, and when we hear the word natural, we equate it with physical, and then we hear the word spiritual, and we go, well, that must mean non-physical. So we lose track of the bodily resurrection. We think that the body that will be resurrected, if we think about the resurrection at all, will be some sort of disembodied, non-physical, ethereal, ghostly kind of thing, hardly recognizable. I think one of the reasons why we're not very excited when we think about the future that awaits us. How could we be? It's just so different. And yeah, it will be so different, but it will also be so similar. Enfleshed. But this is not what's being described here, this disembodied state. And here's how I know that. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4, we we read something interesting. This is just a few chapters earlier in the same discourse. Chapter 15 is not the first time in this letter that Paul has used this idea of being spiritual. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we begin with this. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Okay, so he's reminding, he's reminding Corinthian Christians, actually, of their spiritual forefathers who walked through the Red Sea. I don't want you to be un- unaware of this, he says. They all walked through uh, under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And listen to this. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. So just for the sake of this sermon, I want to point out one thing to you. The water that the Israelites drank in the wilderness was real water that met a real need for hydration. And the rock from which it flowed was a real rock, which made this particularly miraculous, because water doesn't do that. Real water flowed from a real rock, physical water from a physical rock. That's what makes it miraculous. That's what makes it unbelievable. That's what causes us, through eyes of faith, and hearts of faith to praise God that he could do something that makes no sense to us. We don't need to spend any more time examining this except to to make the point that spiritual here is not, it doesn't mean non-physical. The rock was a real rock. The water was real water. And he calls it spiritual. So whatever spiritual means, it doesn't mean, you know, some sort of analogy or allegory or ethereal ghostly thing. So when we read in verse 44 of chapter 15 that our bodies are raised a spiritual body, we must not translate that into something non-physical. This is made even more clear in verses 45 through 49 when he goes back to this contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a living, a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. In a, Keep in mind, like that word spiritual, whatever it means, don't think, oh, 
Natural is physical. Spiritual is non-physical. As was, listen to this, as was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. And as the man of, the, of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. In this comparison, there is a recognition that we share in the nature of the man to whom we belong. We share in the nature of the man to whom we belong. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those of the man of dust. We die because he died. We go into the ground because that's where he ended up. We decay because he decayed. That's the first Adam. And as, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The man of dust is Adam, our first parent. The man of heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we belong to the second Adam, we follow him. We belong to him, we bear his image, and we will bear his image. As he is, so we will be. We can look forward to what Jesus secured for himself in his resurrection and know that that is a first fruit of what he secured for us. So what do we know about this body? That's an interesting question. We get a glimpse into eternity when we're told what that body's like. It's not an... It's not an eternity in a disembodied state. The body he bears is the same kind of body that we will one day bear. It is the kind of body that will rise from the grave. We know that because Jesus rose from the grave. And his body wasn't there. We've already been told it's imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. But we get little yet fascinating insights into some additional aspects of what it, what it will be like as the gospel writers recount what was experienced by the witnesses of Christ's resurrection. There's two that I'm going to point out. The first is in John 20 with Doubting Thomas. Some of you may have thought of this before. It's really interesting. Verse 24 of John chapter 20 says this. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my fingers into the marks of the nails and place my hands in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, Jesus called his bluff. As his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. A few things to note about this. John tells us explicitly that the doors were locked. That's not an accident. He's making a point. The doors are locked. In order for a person to get through a door, what do you need to do? Unlock the door, open it, shut the door behind you. But that's not what happened. Jesus somehow enters the room without going through the door. Or, well, maybe he went through the door in a different way. As C.S. Lewis points out somewhere, I, can't, I couldn't remember where I saw it. But he says, our natural response is to think that, that this tells us that our resurrected body will somehow be less substantial, less real, less solid than the door. But the alternative could also be true. And is actually more, these are my words, by the way, paraphrasing his. Um, the alternative could also be true. I think it's more beautiful. I think it's more appropriate to the reality that Jesus secured for us. I'd argue that it actually gets us closer to the truth that our resurrected body will actually be more solid, more real, and more substantial. And that in comparison to what we believe now to be solid and real, that that will all be comparatively ghostly. It's quite possible that Jesus could walk through the wall or the door unopened, not because he was less substantial than the door, but because in comparison to the glory of his new body, the door was really what was ghostly. Same body, clearly different. And notice as well that this body that now stood before them is one that can be seen and touched. Jesus even dares Thomas to do so. And to his credit, Thomas, having been in the presence of the resurrected Lord, did not need to touch him. He believed. 
The last example that kind of gives us some, some more insight is in John 21, the breaking of bread uh, that Jesus has with, with Peter. I want to point out simply that in that passage, this is verses 4 through 15, if you're taking notes, that in this passage, Jesus does a few interesting things. He breaks bread, he made a fire, he cooked, and he ate with his disciples. Clearly, the body that we await is a genuine body. It's the same body. It's different in key ways. You might say that it's different in that it is the I mean, you, We might say simply that it is different in that it is the same body glorified. It is imperishable, honorable, glorious, and spiritual. And yet he still does things like break bread, makes a fire, cooks, eats with his disciples. You can touch him. If he moves his body from one place to another, you can't find it there anymore. And so as we end, there's just a, one truth that I, wanna, I want you to be ruminating on as you leave, and then three points of application to consider. The truth is this. Our bodies matter. Jesus died to redeem our bodies. It makes as much sense to say that our bodies are unimportant as it would be to say that our spirits are unimportant. Jesus died to save both. The body that will be resurrected is both the same and different. It will be physical, but that doesn't mean it will operate in all the same ways. But regardless of all the details, so many of which haven't even been revealed to us, we must remember that our bodies matter. It is not a wise disinterestedness or an act of faith to talk about our bodies as if they are a piece of trash to simply be discarded or abused or ignored. That would be scriptural ignorance. It would be dishonoring of something that Jesus believes so valuable that he was willing to die for it. So there are three points of application. When you talk about the day of your death and what should be done to your body, please stop talking about your body just being an unimportant husk. Though it is true that our body is sown in dishonor, it is just as true that it will be raised in honor. It is, an, it is important enough that Jesus died to save it. So let's find better ways of honoring our bodies and of displaying to the world around us their value and that we believe they will one day rise glorious. The grave should no longer be thought of as a trash can for your body, but as a garden bed into which a simple seed is being sown and a glorious plant will one day emerge. Number two, we should be on guard against the Gnostic tendency to say that what is non-physical is good, but what is physical is unimportant. One place this can be seen is in the relationship of the universal church to the invisible church. The universal church is the concept, it's a theological concept that identifies all those who truly throughout time belong to Christ and who will worship him in eternity, in the new heavens and in the new earth. We can't see the entire invisible church and the parts that we see now, we can't see certainly, but it's real. So you've got this concept of the invisible church, what is real, right? All those who belong to Jesus throughout time. But then you've got the visible church, who com- that's comprised of all those who call on the name of Jesus now. So these are the people sitting in the, in the seats around you. You can see them. You can smell them. They're visible. Full of imperfect people. Many people I've encountered have denied the importance of the visible church. But that's the one in which you actually sing. You actually shake hands. You actually make small talk. You actually eat potlucks together with these people. These are the, this is the place, the visible churches, where you actually hurt each other. And then you're supposed to be reconciled. But many people deny the importance of the invisible church because they have, whether they know it or not, a Gnostic assumption that all that really matters is what is spiritual. And what they mean by that is non-physical. But God saved us, as we've learned over and over again, body and soul. And our bodies live in space and in time. Where you take your unglorified bodies each Sunday matters. The relationship you establish with real Christians now matters. You can't be a member of the universal church and deny the visible church that is here and now expression of it. Regardless of how imperfect that visible expression may be. 
So if, here's the application. If you're not committed to a particular body, a particular part of this visible church, I don't mean CVP, I mean the church that you can see, this meeting right now here in California, then find one and commit both body and soul. And then the third and last application is this. You don't have to fear death anymore. You don't have to fear losing the body you love. Jesus died to save it. It may be different in the end, but it will be different like a plant is different than the seed that bore it. More truly the plant than the seed ever was. And you don't have to fear the death of your children, your spouses or your loved ones when they know Jesus. Not only will you see them again, which is true, but we will one day see each other risen and restored. So glorious, it may take a moment to recognize one another, but nevertheless the same people in the same glorified bodies. Death does not win. There is no stalemate. The yin and the yang tell a lie. It's not a battle throughout time between good and evil balancing one another. No, there will be a victor. His name is Jesus. And we have today and every day until the consummation of this great work good reason to celebrate and be thankful and that's what we have a chance to do now as we eat together. We celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus together. If you call upon the name of Jesus, you belong to him. And so this meal is for all those who belong to him. So if, you're, if you bear the mark of Jesus and you're in baptism and you're not under discipline that would prevent you from participating, then you are invited to come and to remember what it took to save you, both body and soul. Let's pray. Father, help us to eat in faith and to drink in faith. We ask that you would use these simple little elements to do something marvelous in us. And I pray that whether it was the points of application that we were just speaking of or it is, there are other ways that you are working through your spirit on the hearts of those who are here to calm fears, to, to produce a desire for greater obedience. Father, we, we ask that you would work even through the meal that we're about to eat to encourage us, to strengthen us, to equip us for the good work that you've called us to. We thank you for this time to eat in celebration, and we pray this in Jesus' name.